Nearly one in five children aged 2 to 19 is considered obese. That's up 400% since 1978. This is a tragedy on so many levels. Yet it doesn't have to be that way. There is blame to go around among food manufacturers and government recommendations, but the power, the real power, is with the loving yet unwitting parents. What mistakes have you made and how can you fix them before it's too late? Join me now when I speak to Nicole Avina, research neuroscientist and nutrition expert. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us and share this. Share this with all those other mommies and daddies that lovingly may be making some mistakes. Hey there, Facebook. It is great to see you today. Thank you for joining me. I'm Sarah Heiner, and welcome to my health and happiness show. Um, It's raining where I am right now. It's a little gray out, but you can still have a happy day. And you know what? Sometimes those rainy days feel really good, honestly. So hi there. Um, My usual reminders, um, share these, tell your friends about them. We'll be back here every Thursday. Um, We have a growing list of videos in the Facebook page here. Um, On under the video tab, we've got all these dozens and dozens that we've been doing on Facebook Lives in the past year. Um, If you go to our YouTube page, we take the videos from this, we put them into YouTube. We've got hundreds of videos actually that I've produced over the years on our YouTube page. So share them, tell your friends about them. If you have a friend that would have loved to have seen this video today, you can send them back here or again, subscribe to the YouTube page and we will, they can find that and so much more that's in there. Um, Also again, as always, download our free book about immunity. The world is opening up. People are afraid. It's, we have done such a good job of getting people afraid of COVID be, and for good reason. It's a very serious illness, but we're opening up. We're coming to the light. People are getting vaccinated. The numbers are down like crazy in the last couple of months. And I'm still hearing people that are afraid. They're afraid to go out. They're afraid. We're, not, we're now like afraid to touch and be in people's presence. The most important thing you can do is strengthen your immune system. Good food, good sleep, good exercise things that you can do. So our editors have put together a free download for you, share it, tell your friends, I don't care, post it on your own page, but download that puppy and get yourself strong because there's no reason that your body can't do what it actually knows how to do. We just have to understand what it does and how to give it the right fuel to do it. And then it is known, it's what it does, it protects us. So don't forget to do that. So download that now, there's a link in the bio. Um, Next week, we're gonna talk about mushrooms. I actually just ate my first mushrooms. I don't like them, it's a texture thing, but they're so healthy that I may actually have to learn to like them because they're so good for you. So that's next week, we're gonna talk to Chris Hobbs, one of the leading experts on mushrooms. All right, Um, if you have questions or comments today um, for Nicole Avina, then do indeed put them into the chat box and they will be passed along to me so that we can answer your questions as we're going along. If we don't get to any of your questions, I'll see if we can. she can be nice, kind enough to answer the questions after the fact and we'll get an answer back to you. Um, all right, you know what? I was gonna switch my view, but we already you're already looking at the lovely Dr. Nicole, Nicole Avina. So let me introduce her to you, tell you all how great she is and why she's going to really light your fire today. Um, so uh, Nicole Avina is a research, research neuroscientist at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. She's an expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction. Um, She's the author or co-author of five books, including Why Diets Fail, Hedonistic Eating, which is a really big thing for 
all of us, um, and what to feed your baby and toddler, which is kind of at the root of our conversation today, although we're going to talk about feeding children of all ages. And you can learn more about her and all of her work and all of her wisdom at drnicolavina.com. So hi, Nicole. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. My delight. All right. So I, read, I was looking at the stats. In 1978, 5% of children ages 2 through 19 were obese. In 2016, 18.5% were obese. And I couldn't even find more recent numbers. I'm sure you've got more recent numbers. So high level, 5% nearly quadrupled in the last bunch of couple decades. What's going on? Yeah, it's a big jump. And it's something we need to all be concerned about. I mean, we're seeing, you know, a very young population of people that are now trending toward having it be normal to be overweight or obese. And that's not a good thing. And I think it all comes back to our, our food environment has changed. If we look at all the things that have changed in terms of nutrition and accessibility and the types of foods that we eat, especially the types of foods that we feed our kids, they've changed dramatically. If you think back to, you know, what people were giving their kids to eat in the 60s and the 50s, it's a completely different diet than what kids are getting today. And now we're starting to see some of the health implications that are going along with that. And so and again, there's active, I mean, there's the part that kids are less active than they ever were as well, or they're because the, you know, the, the computers and the screens and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I, I was interviewing someone a couple of weeks ago about um, the nature, he'll call it a nature deficit disorder. We just was, we're interviewing someone, uh, John Luke Puma, and it's like 85% of retired people spend their time indoors. Like we're just so not active. That said, weight loss experts always talk about like you can be active, but it's really the food and your consumption that's the driver of your weight. Right. I think I've, you know, I've heard other people say, and I say it myself, you can't really exercise your way out of a bad diet. Right. And so if you're not eating a healthy diet and you're also not exercising, that's just the perfect storm for, you know, obesity and the comorbid complications that come along with it. But if you are exercising and still eating, you know, relatively healthy, then that's a good thing. But I think what we're seeing among youth these days is that we have this poor diet. And like you said, you know, kids aren't really as active as they used to be. The world is a very different place. And I have little kids, so I could speak from personal experience where you know, my mom used to open the door and tell me to come back at five o'clock. Mm -hmm. And I would never do that with my kids. Like, it's just a right. very different world that we live in. And so, you know, we are seeing that people are spending more time on screens and online and interacting in that way. Whereas, you know, kids aren't necessarily getting the physical activity that used to come along with riding your bike five blocks away to get to your friend's house. And so we're starting to see that the combination of, you know, lack of exercise, lack of physical activity and this poor diet is really starting to compound. And what that is resulting in is many kids were seeing very, very young developing type two diabetes, which is something we used to never see. Type two diabetes used to be something that only adults developed, but now we're seeing you know, young children developing type two diabetes. And so this is what is starting to unfold. And I think that it's only gonna get worse if we don't start to make some changes in terms of how we approach diet nutrition when it comes to the little ones. Now, and there's a concept, I'm I don't know that this is the right phrasing. I'm going to call it that they can be fat skinny because like, there's weight and there's nutrition. And there are plenty of kids out there that are thin. And I listen to some of these moms on what they're feeding their kids. And it's, you know, donuts for breakfast and Smurf Berry Crunch. For, like, 
that they're they're still they're not getting the nutrients. So talk about that for a second. How many? So there's obese kids, right? So we've got nearly twenty percent obesity. But what about these kids that are what I'll call fat skinny? Yeah, great. I'm so glad you brought that up. And it's something that I think is really struggling for parents to cope with too, because they might look at their child and say, oh, my child's perfectly healthy. Look how lean they are. You know, I took them to the pediatrician and their normal body weight, they're, they're fine. So they can eat those snacks. They must just have a high metabolism. But the problem is that people don't realize is that what ends up happening if your child's eating a lot of junk food, the fat that's in that food is not getting deposited on, you know, their body on the outer part of their body where they're like looking like they've gained extra weight. It's getting deposited inside their body, inside their arteries where we don't want it, especially among young children. I mean, we don't want to be worrying that our little kids are going to be having heart attacks, but that's the road that we're headed down. Just like when we get older, we need to make sure we're, you know, monitoring our fat intake because too much fat can clog your arteries. Well, it can happen to little kids too. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, like you said, these skinny fat kids in the sense that they're fat on the inside, not on the outside. And that's almost more dangerous than being fat on the outside, because when your fat is all being stored inside your body, it's being stored either, you know, in your blood vessels or it's being stored around your organs, which you don't want because that's going to impair the ability for your organs to function correctly. So I think that it really is a challenge. And my approach has always been, it's not about weight. It shouldn't be about what your child weighs. It should be about what nutrition they're getting and what they're eating, because you can control what they're eating to some degree in the sense that you can help to train them to understand the value of healthy food and how it's going to have a positive impact on their life. But if you're allowing them to have lots of sweets and treats all the time, and it's really just become, you know, the majority of their diet, you're setting them up for real problems later in life because it's so hard to change your ways after you get out of adolescence in terms of the way in which you eat. Well, and you know, we're talking about, we're going to bounce back and forth. A lot of this is little kids because we're talking about the habits that are set up. But again, mm-hmm. there, there's plenty of skinny fat teenagers as well. These teenage girls that are living on junk and plenty of skinny fat adults, people that Absolutely. drink and smoke and aren't getting the proper nutrition to fuel their bodies. Um, the important thing that always strikes me is parents forget that we're in charge and that, right? And that yes. somehow there's this like, especially with little kids, we bring the food into the house. They're not in the grocery store. They never know about gushers right. until we bring it home. And I, I've told the story before. I was going to the grocery store with a friend of mine. Our kids were about the same age. She had a son who was a few months older than mine. And he was just six months. Mine was about three months old. And we go to the grocery store and she's so excited because the kid just reached the Cheerio stage. And she tells me that she's buying him Fruit Loops. A six-month-old doesn't need to know about Fruit Loops, so that it's the we've got parents, we've got so much control on what comes into that house, and that it's it's like we like we we give away all of our power. Yeah, and I, I think that, and I talk about this with new moms you have to really harness that control because you're not going to have it forever. And you need to make sure that, you know, you really are able to kind of control the home food environment because if your child goes to grandma's house or goes when they start to go to school, you're going to lose the ability to regulate what they're getting exposed to in terms of food. I mean, I know my kids, they go to school and every day it's somebody's birthday for some, I don't know how it's possible for everybody's birthday. One day it's always somebody's birthday. Not there's not enough kids in the school for that to be happening, but it happens. And, you know, I 
can control what we have at home. So we don't really keep a lot of sweets and treats at home right. because they're getting them when they go out, they're getting them when they go to their grandmothers or, you know, when they go to birthday parties and things like that. And so I think that you're right. We have to really kind of harness that control and try to keep the home food environment as healthy as possible so that the sweet treats can be actually sweet treats, meaning like every once in a while when we go out or go someplace or we're at someone's house, not, you know, oh, every single night, let's have, you know, ice cream sandwiches. Or using it as a pacifier. And I, yes. And I, I don't mean a toddler pacifier. I mean, just, you know, kids bugging me, kids, whatever, and you shut them up so that they stop complaining and you bribe them with food and you do all those things that we all did or grew up with. Um, and I'm not saying don't never eat this stuff, as you said, as a treat versus as a habit or as a, yeah. as a guarantee that there, you don't have to have dessert every single night. Right. I'm glad you brought up the, you know, using food as a reward for, you know, or, or as a distractor. And, and I think that's so important that parents realize that it's very, te- and I can speak from experience, two kids of my own, it is extremely tempting to do that. If you know, you can keep your child quiet and happy so you can mm-hmm. have you know, 15 minutes to do a conference call or whatever it is mm-hmm. by giving them a, like ice cream, you know, it's tempting to do that. But what ends up happening is you're creating this situation that is twofold. One, you're teaching them that if they're bored or lonely or anxious or need something to do that they should eat. Right. And that's not what they should do. You should only eat when you're hungry or you need calories. And you're also creating a situation where you're rewarding them with food. You're teaching them that they can reward their behavior or reward themselves with food. And that's also a very dangerous situation to enter into because that kind of sets people up for this like, you know, mentality that, oh, if I'm good, I can treat myself to something that is tasty. And I think that that starts to create an unhealthy relationship with food. I really think we need to teach kids to approach food as a fuel for our body, as something that we need to be powerful and to survive. And we want to put the best fuel that we can in our bodies. And yes, there's places for sweets and treats here and there, but overall, we want to make sure that, you know, we're using that food to really make sure that we're able to function our best. Yeah. It's funny. My kids always mock me because I just say it's just food and I totally view it as fuel. And there's, this isn't to say that you can't enjoy delicious food. I have, my daughter's like, she cooks beautiful food and she really enjoys like the process and healthy food. So this is not like, it's just treats or just fuel. There is this rich and beautiful thing to it as well. Um, yes. The other aspect of this though, again, when you have a kid who's, we're, we're trained, we're rewarding the bad behavior besides. So when you have a kid that learns, if I bug mom enough and I bug mom enough and I bug mom enough, and finally you go, okay, fine. I just need you quiet for 10 minutes. Right. It's, it's behavioral training 101 in terms of, we just rewarded that behavior. Right. And that's going to make that behavior continue then because Mm -hmm. you've created that association. So I always suggest that people try to break that behavior as soon as it starts or don't start it to begin with. And instead, you know, give your child 10 minutes on their iPad or 10 minutes on a device. If you know, that's what it takes. (laughs) Different addiction. Yeah. But again, you know, all in moderation, but I do think that, you know, since we're talking about nutrition today, we do need to kind of move away from using food as a reward because that's going to backfire in the end. Yep. Well, and how much of the problem, because obviously we also have a a parallel adult obesity problem. Mm -hmm. How much of today's adult obesity problem started with childhood behaviors? You know, that- Yeah, it's a good question. I think that, you know, we're starting 
to see as the data roll in and you know we we know more about what's happening on our food environment over time we started to see this rise in the rates of obesity among adults around the time we started to have more sugar being introduced into our diets and so there's interesting correlations between, you know, the amount of sugar that's in processed foods and the number of processed foods that have been developed in like the 50s and 60s and 70s. And that's when we start to see this rise in obesity rates. And so that's what's led many people to suggest that, well, this, these two things are linked. And I think that there is some truth to that. And I think that what we're seeing now is that, you know, foods that you're exposed to early in life can have an impact on your food preferences later on. Even foods that we're exposed to before we're born, when we're, you know, women are pregnant, the foods that they eat have an impact on the fetus in a good way because it's providing nutrition, but it's also providing them with exposure to different taste ins and flavors that they carry with them throughout their life. And so what I think we're seeing now is kind of a combination of early life exposure to a lot of highly processed foods, either via pregnancy or via, you know, just, these toddler foods that are available and on the markets these days. And then also just this influx of sugar that we've seen in our modern food environment. And now we're finding that that is coming together to result in not only this obesity problem among children, but also among adults as well. So let's talk about the processed food thing again, because they, they came in with abundance, I'll call it in the 1960s. Um, and then soon after that, in the 19, I guess, late 70s, 80s, there was a shift where fat became the devil. Yeah. And every the it was and the fat got replaced in in these packaged foods with sugar. Everyone was no fat, no fat, no fat. And that was when, as you said, obesity and diabetes kind of skyrocketed. Yes. So talk about that for a second and the misunderstanding of fat. Because in fact, when it comes to feeding children, fat is really critical. And these mothers who are giving their babies low fat whatevers are depriving them of brain. Right. Right. Yeah. So like you said, the timeline was pretty clear that, you know, fat became demonized in the 80s. And part of that was driven by the fact that there had been some publications that came out talking about the dangers of fat for a cardiovascular standpoint. Right. And we know that we know too much saturated fat is not good for our health. That's why we try to avoid it. That's why we don't eat trans fat. Right. But it was kind of taken to the extreme and the diet culture picked up on it and kind of came up with this idea that, yeah, fat makes you fat. And if you don't eat fat, then you'll be thin and healthy. And so we saw a plethora of, you know, products that were out there that were, I remember, you know, my mom coming home from the grocery store with all these fat-free cookies. The snackwells. Yes, snackwells. Snackwells were bigger than anything and everyone thought it was a free pass. Yes. It was the the biggest thing to happen in the world because now you could eat as many cookies as you want because they don't have fat in them. So you're going to be healthy and look great. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case. What ended up happening was that low fat, actually means high carb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the, that's what it translates to. And so people were consuming less fat and they were consuming a lot more carbohydrates. The carbohydrates are what were causing people to, you know, have these increases in diabetes, increases in body weight. And, you know, what we found over time is that a high carbohydrate diet, unless you're an elite athlete, is really not going to be a healthy diet for you because you're not going to burn off all those carbohydrates. Your body's just going to store them as fat. And so there's this misconception or there was this misconception that fat is bad for you because fat is the thing on your body that you're trying to get rid of. But the reality is that fat is good for you. We need fat for our brain. Our brains can't function unless we eat fat. 
And we need to have fat in our diet coming from good sources like omega-3 fatty acids that we get from fish and avocados, and nuts and things like that. Um, and what happens among children too is, you know, if parents aren't aware of the value of fat and, you know, especially among little kids whose brains are constantly changing and developing and growing, they need that fat in order for the neurons to be able to make the ability to communicate. And when, you know, parents opt for fat-free milk for their two-year-old, mm-hmm. not really necessary in my opinion, because your child actually needs the fat. They need that healthy fat in order to be able to have proper brain functioning and proper growth. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, we're starting to see it swing back around where I think people are coming back to this idea that maybe, you know, some fat's good, some carbohydrates good, but these extreme diets have really kind of messed us up over the past 20 years. Well, now they've got extreme ketogenic and extreme Atkins, like extreme of anything. Right. Doesn't matter. Right. Fat, sugar, salt, grapefruit, whatever it is, extreme just is extreme. It is. And it's um, not sustainable. That's that's the thing I, I often will tell people. Like, yeah, you could do keto and maybe you'll lose 10 pounds, but unless you're gonna do that forever, which I would not advise, right? It's it's not sustainable. It's not something that you know you're gonna be able to do and eat way that way for the rest of your life. Yeah. Agreed. So meanwhile, though, so evolutionarily, we, what is it with sugar? I mean, because we have this evolutionary attraction to sugar and, you know, inherently foods, are, you know, berries are sweet. Like talk about that. Like it's this weird thing because we're now addicted. Like we have this sugar addiction problem. And yet biologically we're, we're predetermined, you know, we're, we're kind of pre-programmed towards sugar. Yeah, we're, we're essentially born to love sugar and it comes from our ancestors. We have this evolutionary drive to like things that are sweet, because if you think back to when we were hunters and gatherers, if you found a berry bush, you would want to eat the berries that tasted sweet because those are the ones that are ripe and safe to eat. But the ones that are sour and bitter are the ones that maybe are on the forest floor. You don't want to eat those because they, you know, could poison you and kill you. And so we've come over time to code sweetness with safety. And, you know, it came from our ancestors, but then it gets passed down when we're first born, because when we drink breast milk or when we have even baby formula, it's sweet. It tastes sweet to a baby. And so that, you know, first taste that babies get is really sweetness. And they code that with safety and nourishment from their mother or from their father. And so this is something that, you know, we learn from, we have this genetic drive towards sweetness, and then we learn it at a very young age. And so we're essentially programmed to really crave and desire sweets. And normally that would have been fine if we go back 50 years ago when we didn't have sweets all over the place in our food environment. But now we have sugar added to pretty much everything. There's sugar in, you know, all these processed foods that we see in the grocery store, I think 80% of the processed foods in the grocery store contain added sugars. We're seeing, you know, sugar is just being added to everything. And partly it's because the companies want to make the foods taste sweeter because then people will like them more. Partly it's because we've become tolerant, meaning that we are so used to sugar that we need more of it in order to think something tastes good. And so it's a consumer demand issue at this point where that's why we're seeing so many companies making these products have lots of added sugars. It's because that's what the consumer wants. Well, and how about also the biochemical changes of the brain and the reactions of the brain to the sugar, and I'll call it the addictive, the chemical addiction of it. So that are we on the cycle of the brain just keeps craving more sugar as well? 
Yeah, we've done a lot of research about this in my lab. And so this is something that I actually started doing research on this when I was a grad student at Princeton, believe it or not, when I first started there, um, you know, we were trying to figure out what I was going to do for my dissertation project. And my advisor and I at the time were talking about, you know, how it seemed like the obesity epidemic was somehow related to the food environment. And we had to figure out what piece was missing. And we started talking about how many of the foods that are on the market are loaded with sugars. And could it be that maybe these highly processed foods are acting more like a drug than a food in terms of the brain and the neurochemistry? Right. And so we did a, a whole series of experiments, and I'm still to this day doing those experiments, trying to figure out the link between sugar and the brain and how it affects addiction. And what we found essentially is that when people eat high sugar foods, it releases dopamine, it releases other neurochemicals in the brain, in these reward-related parts of the brain that look like what happens when somebody uses drugs of abuse. And so if we take an image of you know, the brain of someone that's eating sugar, and we put it next to the brain of someone that you know, was just injected with cocaine or nicotine or morphine, the brains look identical. And it's, it's really important because we understand, you know, addiction to drugs and how difficult that can be to overcome in terms of developing tolerance and withdrawal and cravings. And, you know, it's not something that people can just up and quit usually. And we're seeing the same thing happening with sugar. People are finding that they're hooked on the stuff and they can't break away from it. And I think, you know, for many individuals, it's, it's more difficult than being addicted to a drug in some cases, because when you're addicted to drugs, you know, fortunately, drug addicts don't have to worry about driving around and seeing billboards for like heroin or billboards advertising, you know, even liquor anymore. We don't have advertisements for alcohol as readily as we used to. And same thing for cigarettes. But that's not the case with food. I mean, you can't go anywhere. You can't even click on your computer without getting an ad pop up about, a, you know, a restaurant or, you know, some fast food or some type of food that, you know, is going to be desirable. And so people are really having to fight all of these different environmental cues. And it, it can be draining and very difficult. And that's why I think so many people struggle with, with overeating and not eating a, a healthy diet. Well, and let alone that, you know, sugar comes in many forms. So, so there's the old... You know, in the old days, it was, I'll have a tab and a hot fudge Sunday, right? Yeah. So there's diet sodas, which you think that those are a free pass, but they're not biochemically. They're still hitting the same brain receptors, right? Yes. Um, and then the other, all the other hidden sugars and versions so that it doesn't say, you know, doesn't scream in neon lights on the package that is sugar, but it shows up biochemically in there as what are some of the names of all those things? Right. So when we've done studies on this and we've looked at, you know, how the brain responds to different types of sugars, different types of sweeteners, because yes, there's this lure for these artificial sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners, or some of them I've started to call alternative sweeteners mm -hmm. that maybe don't have a lot of calories or have fewer calories. But the problem is that our brain just detects the sweet taste. And so if you have this compulsion to eat sugar and you think, oh, let me just switch to one of these other sweeteners you're not solving the problem. You're still causing this addiction cycle in your brain and these behaviors, and it's still going to lead you to crave sugar. And what ends up happening over time is that, you know, a lot of studies have been done that show, especially in people who are overweight, that even if you switch to a low calorie or a zero calorie sweetener, you end up gaining weight later on. And so it might save you a few hundred calories at this meal, but you end up overeating at another meal later on. And so, so is it, you know, there's the, you feel like you're craving it, but there's, I always think of the, you know, your blood sugar spike and then you, mm -hmm. then you, you crash. Like when you, you 
you take a bunch of sugar, you spike and then you crash and then you need, your body needs more. But it's almost that it's the brain that's fooling the rest of your body on it because yes. the brain, the brain receptors are being told that they need more again, even if it's a low calorie and no calorie or a stevia or, a, you know, whatever. Right. Exactly. And I think that that's why, you know, my advice to people is to try to unsweeten your diet, forget about trying to find this little trick or this, you know, free pass with this, like, you know, alternative sweetener that's going to save the day. The goal is to just reduce the amount of sweetness in your diet completely. Try to sweeten your diet with things that are natural, like raisins or, you know, other fruits that contain natural sources of sugar and really just work as much as you can to really minimize the sweetness in your diet, because that's going to be the only way that your brain is going to be able to adapt back to a non-sugar laden diet. Right. And natural for processing. So how come back to evolution, how come nutrient dense foods like broccoli, right? Like kale, like, you know, any of those, you know, mushrooms, I was joking before about mushrooms, that we don't naturally enjoy those, that those in some ways are acquired tastes. I mean, wouldn't you think that the species would want to be attracted to that? It's a really great question. And, you know, I, I don't know if we quite know the exact answer, but you're right. And it's interesting that broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cruciferous vegetables are actually bitter tasting to children. And so one of the things that's really interesting about adults and kids that we sometimes forget is that we live in very different sensory worlds, meaning that something that, you know, you or I might taste as being very sweet. If we gave it to my five-year-old, she's not going to think it's sweet at all. Their threshold for sweetness is very, very different than adults. It changes over time. So that's why you'll see they have a higher, they have a lower, a higher tolerance of sweet. So it, yes, yeah. exactly. And so that's why you'll see it, you know, if kids are eating cereal that might have sugar on it, they'll want to put more sugar on it because it doesn't taste sweet to them, mm-hmm. but adults might find that aversive. And so, you know, one of the things that we know is that kids also find those really nutrient dense, delicious, you know, for us vegetables to be actually bitter. And so that's why it's so much more difficult to get kids on board with eating them because we might, you know, be able to get over the bitterness because we just, you know, know that there's a lot of health benefits, but little kids don't really get that. And so it is a really interesting question. And I think it does go back to survival, right? I mean, yeah, it's great to eat kale and broccoli, but if you go for something that has sugar in it, that's going to be tied more to our survival. And I think if we think back to hunters and gatherers, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think they were stumbling upon a kale patch really that often. (laughs) It was most likely, you know, animal meat and berries, Dandelions. Yeah, dandelions. Um, but I think that, you know, these more nutritious vegetables that we we have the available to us are really the things we have to start pushing on kids when they're young. And I talk about this in my book, What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler. You know, I actually suggest when people start feeding their babies, they don't lead with the, the fruits. Do not start with apples. Do not start with bananas. You start off with the things that your kids are probably going to like the least. You know, so start off with peas, start off with all the green vegetables, because if your kid doesn't know the taste of sweetness at that point, if the only thing they've ever had before is breast milk or baby formula, peas are going to taste pretty good. But if you give them apples and then you give them peas or you give them apples and then you try to give them spinach, forget about it. They're not going to, it's negative contrast. It's a psychological phenomenon. It'd be like, if I, you know, told you I was going to give you, you know, $10 
and then you, you know, the person 10 minutes ago, I gave, you know, this person sitting next to you a hundred dollars, you'd be like, Oh, well, that's really not that $10 isn't that great after all. But you know, if you didn't get exposed to somebody else having a better reward, then you'd think, well, that's great. You gave me 10 bucks. Right. Same thing happens in our minds when we eat food. And so if you're going to have something that's really delicious, you're going to have the memory for that. So the next food that isn't quite as tasty is not going to be as appealing. Well, and you talk about also that again, back to parents being in charge, that we need, you need to be persistent when you're feeding these to the kids because they're going to push it away, push it away, push it away. But you talk about that it's eight or 10 exposures till they start to kind of get used to it. Yes. Yes. There's been lots of research. And I talk about that in the book a fair amount about how, you know, studies have been done in, in laboratories looking at how many exposures are required in order to get babies to develop acceptance of food. And it is between eight to 10 times. So that means that, you know, the first time you're giving your baby, let's say pureed spinach, if they don't like it, they might make a face. But again, we have to remember that the face of a six month old doesn't necessarily correspond to their actual emotions. They have like innate facial responses of disgust or like, those are really the two emotions that right. they can make facial responses to. And so just because your baby makes a face of disgust doesn't mean that they don't like it. It might mean that this is different or this is weird to them. And a lot of times parents see that face and they just, you know, the parent in them comes out and they're like, oh my God, they hate it. Let me give them something to make it better. And so really it's about going back, you know, at the next meal and offering it again, next meal, offering it, keep offering it, offering, offering it. And after eight to 10 times, babies will start to develop an acceptance of it, meaning that they're willing to eat it and, you know, not have those faces of disgust. So how important is it the cues from the parents during feeding. You know, I always talk about you watch kids fall on the playground and the first thing they do is look at the parents. Right, to decide if they should cry. Yes. Okay, right. So if I'm feeding my kid broccoli and deep inside I'm apologizing to them, versus to go at them with the exact same yum, 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 whether it's broccoli, peas, or apples and bananas, that yes. are they, is that cue also important to the acceptance by the child? Absolutely. The cue from the parents, the cues from older siblings are so important and they, babies will pick up on that. And if you're hesitant or you're like, oh, here, you know, would you like a little bite? They're going to pick up on that. And so I think that you really need to try to become emotionally neutral at the dinner table when it comes to giving different types of foods. Mm-hmm. And I think that this carries out even for older kids, like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't really think it's a great idea to make a big deal about, you know, giving, letting a kid have a cupcake. Like if, if that's what you're deciding to do, say, okay, fine, you can have your cupcake. Like, but if it's a big deal either way, then I think that kind of draws attention to it and it makes it stand out. I, I kind of feel like there should be this neutrality about our emotions related to food so that kids will not necessarily code this emotion with the food. And it'll just be more about, you know, what they should be eating, what's healthy and what is appropriate at that given time. Yeah. And then again, it is this whole food is food, such a complicated, fascinating thing in terms of the emotional aspect. And you go back to breastfeeding and you go back to just whether you're breastfeeding or just not just, you know, feeding a baby where you're warm and you're nurtured. And it's, you know, it has so many aspects to it, safety right, um, that occur at the same time. It does. And I think that, you know, when we're in the thick of it, especially when we have our kids young, you don't have time to think about like, you know, oh, what kind of emotions do I have right now while I'm serving dinner? Like it's, it's, it's a lot to think about, but I I really just think that if parents are kind of a little bit more mindful of the fact that 
you know, kids are picking up on our facial expressions. Kids are picking up on what we're saying about the food. And I think that that's a big part of it. And we want to try to model the best behavior and also model the fact that, you know, hey, it's carrots and you need to eat them because they're good for your eyesight. End of story. Yeah. But again, not like a fight. Like you can just see, I'm afraid. Okay. They push it away. Oh no. Right. Right. <laughs> so we can't be afraid. Parents, we're in charge. Right. Right. Um, we have to get some of that courage back, I think. And remember that we are in charge. Exactly. Um, you also, so here's a question. Um, Cause you talk a lot in your book about um, the importance of what a mom eats with regard to breast milk. And mm-hmm. I was just joking with you before, cause I was not always this healthy and I lived my my first pregnancy at the drive-thru. I won't say which, I won't say which drive-thru and which burgers I was eating, but it was not the healthiest diet. And I, I was setting notes to my daughter apologizing for that. Um, but so, but parents are really good about the prenatal vitamins. And then they, it's like they give birth and then they kind of forget, like we give up on that. So, mm-hmm. you know, the importance of the mother's diet. So here's a question. Baby, you know, obviously breast milk is always the gold standard, mm-hmm. but formula versus breast milk of a mother who's eating a terrible diet? Yeah, great question. I, I honestly, I would go with formula yeah. because I think that, you know, we are just, we want to feed our babies. Obviously a fed baby is all that matters, whether it's breast milk or whether it's coming, you know, from a bottle, but you have to keep in mind that what you're putting in your body when you're breastfeeding is getting into your breast milk. And, you know, a lot of people, and I know that I've gone through this with friends of mine who were pregnant where, you know, they're thinking, oh, I want to have a glass of wine. So I'm going to like pump my breast milk and, you know, make sure because I don't want their wine to get in the breast milk. But then they're eating like Doritos and like all these like other like unhealthy foods and that's getting in your breast milk too. And there's been so much research that's gone on showing that there's essences of these foods that get into the breast milk that babies can detect. And, you know, even later on, there's been some studies that I talk about in my book where, you know, if you test these foods later on, babies that were exposed to them via breast milk or via having them, you know, when the mom was pregnant are more likely to eat them. And so they'll have that previous experience. It can work in a positive way. There's been studies that have been done with carrots where women who were told in a study to eat carrots or drink carrot juice during pregnancy, they ended up giving birth to babies who, when it's time to eat at six months, when they offer them carrots, the babies love carrots. But, you know, the same thing can happen with junk food. If, you know, you're on a diet rich in junk food while you're breastfeeding or, you know, pregnant, and then it comes time for your baby to get exposed to junk food, guess what? they're going to code it as safe because they have this essence of it from when they were in utero or when you were feeding them. So it is important. And again, I don't want to scare women who are pregnant or putting the cheeseburger down right now and saying, oh boy, I better (laughs) change some things. It's not, you know, it's in the aggregate. You want to look at your diet as a whole. And yes, of course, there's days where you're going to want to, you know, have some junk food or just whatever it might be. That's fine. But it just, you have to kind of look at the big picture and overall try to have a healthy diet because it can have an impact on the health outcomes for your baby, but also for the behavioral outcomes too. So how so behavioral outcomes? Well, there's been some studies that have been looking at, you know, what a mother eats during pregnancy 
especially high junk food, and then also cognitive abilities later in life. And there's this whole idea of this first thousand days. It's this period of time that goes from conception through age two. And what we're finding from the research is that nutrition during this period is critical, not only for you know the health of the baby, but also cognitive functioning later in life, immune system responses later in life. And it's all coming back to what kind of diet was given during that first thousand days. So there's a really big push right now to educate people about the importance of feeding your baby a good diet. And we even see this in the new nutrition guidelines that came out for 2021. This was the first time in the history of the guidelines where there was a special emphasis made on early life nutrition because there's so much research that's come out now telling us that this is a critical window that we need to make sure that we're addressing because if we don't, that it causes health, a lot of health problems later on. Okay, I need you to quick say something though, because there's a whole bunch of people watching and there's a whole bunch of me's out there with kids that are now in their 20s who looking back 20 years ago, I'm going, oh no, I've ruined my children. (laughs) So (laughs) you did not ruin them. (laughs) Some days I wonder. Um, (laughs) No, but like there's, it's not for the, you're not doomed. I mean, again, we all, no, we all have, again, I always say I grew up in the 60s of popcorns and fruit loops, pop tarts and fruit loops. Like what I right. ate when I was young, it's amazing that I'm alive now, but I'm very well preserved, I have to say, thanks to all of that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, I'm glad you brought that up. You are right. not doomed. And it's, you have to keep in mind, there's multiple factors that play right. into this. And so it's, you know, obviously our genetic history, our early life history, and also our present food environment. And what we can control we want to control, right? And so we can't control our genetics. That's kind of out of our hands, but we can control this early exposure. And so, you know, if you can reduce the amount of, you know, sugar you're consuming when pregnant or reduce the amount of junk food you're eating and take, you know, a stock of your diet, that's a great thing. If that time is passed, you can focus on the present. It's not a sentence. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're bound to now have a child that's going to have health problems, but it could mean that they're going to be at risk. And so if you find that maybe you indulged a little bit when you were pregnant and now you have a five or a six-year-old who has like a vicious sweet tooth and throws temper tantrums every time they don't get a donut, then there could be some connection there. And that's something that you can work on behaviorally now. So that doesn't become, you know, a 25 year old who still got that sweet tooth and now needs blood pressure medication because, you know, of the complications that they have from, you know, cardiovascular issues due to a poor diet. So should parents pay attention to that if their young children are having behavioral issues or attention issues, even if they're, they may or may not be having so much sweets, but it might be some remnant of what they did when they were pregnant or breastfeeding? It's a good question. I don't really know if we've seen studies that have looked at that. I think the studies Mm -hmm. that I've seen have really looked at, you know, diet presently and how it impact behavior. And I know there's been, you know, it's been this like sort of back and forth in the research for years now about whether or not sugar causes hyperactivity and bad behavior. And anyone who's a parent knows that it, it actually does. Do you really but, have to research that? Right. But there's been, a, believe me, there's been tons of research right. studies that have been done and lots of money that's been spent right. on these studies to try to prove that it doesn't produce <laughs> hyperactivity. But um, the bottom line is that, you know, a lot of these behavioral interventions that, you know, we tend to have with toddlers and like, you know, 
kids who are in kindergarten, it can be tied back to the diet. And there's been, you know, lots of work that's been going on to really try to just overhaul kids' diets. And that can have an impact on their behavior. Because if you think about it, I mean, think about yourself. Like, I know me, if I'm having, you know, a period of time where maybe I'm not I'm busy at work. I'm not able to cook a lot. So I'm eating more processed stuff. And, you know, I feel sluggish. I feel irritable. Oh, and yeah. the kids are the same way. Or foggy I mean, head, like just can't concentrate. Exactly. You get this yeah. brain fog and kids are the same way, but you know, as adults, we have restraint and we recognize, you know, our limitations, but when you're four years old, if you don't feel well, you just throw a temper tantrum. If you don't know why you're feeling foggy or feeling, right. you know, irritable, you just right. lay on the floor and start screaming. But that's, so that's, again, you know, if we take a look at the diet, a lot of times that can correct many of these different behavioral problems and parents are really just amazed at how simple it can be. Mm-hmm. So let's clarify one thing, because there's a whole bunch of very earnest, very loving mothers who go, who are very into organic and mm-hmm. very into, you know, they're checking all their labels and they say, oh no, it's organic sugar or it's organic rice syrup. It really doesn't have sugar. Right. Let's talk about that for a second. Just again, not that organic may or may not be better than regular, but from right. a biochemical point of view that that, what's that doing? Right. So when we, you know, again, our brain doesn't know whether or not something's organic or not when it comes to sweets. And so it's similar to the story with, you know, these artificial sweeteners. If you're giving your child organic, you know, cookies, that's great, but you're also still producing that same release in dopamine, the same addiction cycle, the same, you know, changes in the brain that happen with non-organic foods. And so I think that, you know, sometimes people get misled by the term organic and think that that means that it's healthy. And yeah, it's great because it doesn't have as many pesticides and, you know, additives in some cases, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be healthier for your brain and healthier for your body. And so I think that, you know, people need to be mindful. Obviously, yes, organic meats, organic fruits and vegetables, organic milk, those are things that if you have the ability to buy them, I would advertise buying them because, you know, that's good because you don't want to be exposing your children to, you know, toxins and antibodies or antibiotics and things like that that they don't need. But when it comes to snacks, and processed foods, I don't really know that, you know, buying organic is necessary or worth it because you're not necessarily, you know, doing anything in terms of reducing that addiction potential of the food. Right. Gotcha. Okay. So let's, so in terms of mistakes as, you know, babies that, you know, in terms of sugar, in terms of sweets, in terms of what, what parents are eating and in terms of fat, we've kind of covered that world. Let's talk about as the kids get older then. So mm-hmm. what are the, what are the mistakes that help mistakes that parents are making as their kids are growing. And a lot of it may be the same. Well, I think, you know, I, I, again, can come back to this from a personal experience. So my kids are five and then I have also have a 12 year old, almost 13 year old. And so I think that one of the things that we start to see in the teenage years is that, you know, we, we hope that kids will blossom out of maybe being selective or picky eaters. And a lot of times they do, and they're more willing to try different foods, but a lot of times they don't. And they, you know, kind of stick to the same, you know, small list of foods that Mm -hmm. they like. And I think that that's a mistake that parents need to work with their children on, because you're at a point when you're 12 or 13 years old, that you can understand the value of health and the value of nutrition. And that's a point at which I think a lot of parents need to start to have the conversations about, you know, it doesn't matter your body weight. It doesn't matter. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, your health 10 years from now. And that 
is going to be impacted by what you're eating right now. So yeah, you might not like the taste of broccoli and you'd might rather have an ice cream cone. Anybody would, but you do things for your health, not for the taste. And I think that, you know, these are the types of conversations that I have in my house, because this is what I do for a living. Right. But I don't think that most families talk about these things, um, you know, on the level that they probably need to, to get kids serious about it. Because I think that that is a critical window when kids can have a different appreciation for food and learn to value it and learn to see it as something that they need to grow and to be strong, right. especially as they're moving into adolescence. Right. And again, does some of that communication start when they're very young, that you simply, you, you serve them good food. That doesn't mean you never have a box of mac and cheese. Right. There's right. nothing better than tasting than mac and box of mac and cheese, but although homemade is pretty good, um, <laughs> but nonetheless that, but having it just as part of the way, it's just the way you eat. It's not a big deal. It's not a thing. It's just the way that you eat. And similarly, when the kids are young, that as I said before, a two-year-old doesn't know about chocolate chip cookies and ice cream. They don't have to. My older one, for the most part, didn't know about sweets until she was three or four and starting to go to preschool and then yes. saw it on the outside. I wasn't being a nutty, tree-hugging mom. I just, right. she just didn't need to know it. My right. And you knew one, it was coming. Yeah. You knew that eventually she'd yeah. find out. <laughs> right. But it wasn't like, because we ne- we're not a, you know, you have to have dessert every night house anyway. Right. So my younger one got it far younger because now the older one had it in the house. But right. you know, in terms of the parents messaging and the way that you position the meals and the food and the, you know, the, what, what you're putting on the plate. Right. right. And I think, you know, I think I totally agree, but I also think you have to let the kids have some skin in the game so that mm-hmm. they don't feel like they're being told what to do. And so yeah. what I find to work is, you know, I select the meal and then they get to pick what side we're having with the meal. Right. And so, uh, but I give an option. I don't say what, what do you want as a side? Right. Because I, they'd say, oh, let's have, you know, ice cream. Um, <laughs> you know, I give right. two or three options. Right. You know, do you want pasta? Do you want rice? Do you want, you know, whatever it might be, right. mac and cheese maybe. Right. And they, let them pick so that they get, you know, some say in the meal. And the rule is you have to eat a little bit of everything. You have to, you don't have to love it all. Right. You just have to try it all. I was just going to so, ask you, do you have to, the fights about food where, you know, and I remember sitting one time, one night when whatever was served to me, I did not like it. And it was now right. the, of the wills. And, you know, what's your, what's your recommendation in terms of, you know, running a short order kitchen right. versus um, making everybody try it. And yes, they might go to bed hungry every so often. Well, I think you don't want to be a short order cook. That is definitely not the role that you should be aspiring to. No one wants to live like that. And it's sending the wrong message to your kids. If you tell them that you'll make them whatever they want because they don't like what's put in front of them, then what's going to happen when they go over to someone else's house for dinner? That mom's not making them their own thing. So they're going to be in trouble. So I think that, you know, again, nobody wants to have the food fights with their kids and I don't advocate doing that either. But what I do recommend is if you let your child participate in the meal where they're picking a side or, you know, sometimes I'll say to my older daughter, all right, it's your turn to pick. What do we have? And what do you want as the main course tonight? And then, you know, the, the kids are a part of the meal then I think that that helps people to feel more inclusive. And then it also encourages them to try other things. And so I think that, you know, having kids have the ability to have something on the table that they really, really like, and they they know they're going to eat a lot of is is an important part of it, especially when they're little and you're still trying to navigate the whole food world. Yeah. Did you let your kids cook with you even when they were young? 
Absolutely. Yeah. That's something I mean, I love to cook. I'm a recipe developer. I developed the recipes for all my books and I, you know, it's just a big part of like, you know, our family is cooking and mm-hmm. my, and, and maybe it helps because I have daughters, I think, but boys like to cook too. I think mm-hmm. girls tend to, you know, be more into it. And I, yeah. I think it's, it's a fun thing, but yeah, even from when they were real small, like I give my you know two-year-old a butter knife and let her chop up a banana. And just so she thinks she was participating yep. and she thought she was cooking the whole dinner. I mean, she had no idea, but it's just a great way to get kids excited about food and make them feel like they're a part of it. And I think that that's really important too. Yeah. It's funny. I, I used to like, my, my kids would cook with me. I, you're, ta- you're talking about you'd give your two-year-old a butter knife. I think I let my three and four-year-olds use sharp knives. So, so, you know, be careful. <laughs> Here's the point again, be careful. They only cut themselves once. I mean, it wasn't like the sharpest knife in the box, but yes. Um, that, but it let them feel like they were part of it. Um, yes. I didn't worry about the mess. You know, you ever hear these yeah. moms that they let their kids cook and then they freak out because they spilled? No. Uh, okay, That's what you right. get the, the dog will pick it up. Like I, yeah, right. that's not something that, you know, you have to expect the mess. You, you have to remember that, you know, the, the exercise is about getting kids excited about healthy food and eating, mm-hmm. you know, good nutritious food and getting excited about cooking. Cause that's a life skill. And you know, when I was younger, we learned that in home economics and from what I understand, high schools don't teach home economics anymore. So your kids aren't going to learn to cook right. unless you teach them to cook. And so it is important life skill for them to have for the rest of their life. And you have to teach them. So here's a question. I was going to ask this before when you were talking about the young palate and the sensitivity to, you know, to sugar and sweets and stuff. How about other flavors? So rather than add more sugar in, can you add, uh, you know, is it, are they looking for just rich, big flavor that older palates are more sensitive to? So that cinnamon, vanilla, you know, use of other savory spices in, you know, in, uh, di- you know, meal, dinner foods or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a strategy to help um, young palates? Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a really a great idea to start introducing spices like cinnamon and, you know, all these other cooking spices that we use to kids early on. I, and, and that's a good thing because they're not necessarily going to taste it, but they're going to become familiar with it. So then they'll have a more diverse palate when they get older and they'll be more accepting of foods that have those types of ingredients. And I think a lot of times parents are afraid to give their kids spices. And I'm not talking about like hot pepper. I'm talking about just, you know, parsley, oregano, you know, all the different things that we use when we're, you know, making different types of cuisines. Yeah, your little ones, two, three-year-old kids, that's a great time to start exposing them to those types of flavors so that they can become accustomed to them so that they're not so foreign when they're, you know, five or six or seven years old. And they're saying, oh my gosh, that looks like it might have cinnamon on it. I'm not touching it. Right. You know, I think getting, avoiding those aversions and nipping them in the bud is really something that you can do, especially if you start with diverse foods in the little ones. Yeah. It's so funny. And again, I'm sorry, I keep harping on parents because the parents messaging is so powerful, but have you ever watched a mother kid says, can I try this? And they goes, you can try it. You're not going to like it. Right. And I think it's, it's going to be really, too spicy for you. Right. Here, try, you want to eat it raw onion? Here, go try it. You'll decide. Right. 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 And that's what I was saying before about taking the emotion out of it. Like, right. you know, if you can be indifferent about it, like take it, taste it and see if you like it. What does it taste like? You know, because you have to remember, it's going to taste different to your kid than it's going to taste to you just yeah. because of that diversity in their palate compared mm-hmm. to ours. So I, I really think it's a good idea to encourage your kids to try pretty much anything that they want, as long as it's safe and they're not going to choke on it. Like, yeah, let them have it. Yeah, that's kind of my view. All right, one last question, and then I'll let you go. Um, what's your opinion? Do children need vitamins and supplements, nutritional supplements, especially in the context of the diet that they're getting? 
I think so. Absolutely. I think I give my kids nutritional supplements, you know, multivitamins every day. I think it's necessary for two reasons. One, you know, even if you're, you know, the perfect Pinterest mom and every meal is exactly the way it should be, odds are your kids aren't getting enough of the micronutrients that they need every day in order to sustain a healthy functioning body. It's just because of the nature of our food supply, we don't have all these nutritious foods all the time. Mm -hmm. Also, the nutrient composition of our foods has changed. And this is a whole other show, but basically, you know, the carrots that we're eating today are not as nutritious as the carrots that our moms and grandmothers ate. And it's because of the changes in our soil and our farming practices that have basically stripped the land of, you know, nutrients. And so, um, you know, you have to keep that in mind that, you know, we're kind of, even if we're eating a really healthy diet, we're not necessarily getting enough of these micronutrients that we need and getting the breadth of them in order to fully function the best that we can. So I do think there's a place for supplements. I always think it's a good idea to talk to your pediatrician because they can usually recommend ones that they think are good because there's a lot of options out there. There's a lot on the market. Um, And so it could be a little overwhelming if you're not sure where to start, but I do think that, you know, most kids are in need of them. Okay. And then, so that's in general, just basic multi-nutrients in general. Um, I want to make a pitch for vitamin D. I was shocked. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even our young kids are vitamin D deficient and back to my conversation before about immunity, one of the most important factors for immune is vitamin D. Yes. Yeah. I give my kids a multivitamin and then they get a vitamin D supplement on top of it. And I think it's, again, it's so important and it's not even because of, you know, what's happening with the pandemic. It's because of the fact that it's important for bone growth. It's important for cellular structure. I mean, there's so many things that vitamin D does and we're only learning just, I think the tip of the iceberg on it. And especially now, you know, with learning all the research coming out about the immune system and how well it supports the immune system, it's, you know, now more important than ever to make sure you're having enough of that too. And it's tough to get from food. We don't, you know, we have fortified foods that have vitamin D in it, some milks and yogurts, but you know, it's, it's not really absorbed in the way that we're able to have it be absorbed if it comes in a supplement or from the sun, which, you know, most of us are not all that spending much time in the sun these days. Um, so it is an important thing. Right. Well, and even if you are in the sun, depending on your latitude, even like there, most of the United States is not out right. for long enough with the strength of the sun. That's Absolutely. Um, well, I'll post in into the chat, actually, the interview that we did with Dr. Michael Hollick about vitamin D. Um, it was with regard to COVID, but in general, we were talking about the vitamin D deficiency. So I'll put that link into the chat. Dr. Nicole Vina, you're wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I was happy to be here. This was a great conversation. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Come back next week. Tell your friends, share this discussion. I know a lot of you like me, you're a little older than young kids, but you all have kids and you all have friends. So share this discussion because a lot of great, super important information that Dr. Vina shared. So thank you, thank you. We're living in an unprecedented time when trust in our media and news sources are at an all time low. It seems that everyone has an agenda, if not a political one, then a business one, as media companies are beholden to advertisers or shareholders. Well, not at bottom line. We're a family-owned business and have been free from the influence of advertising since our start nearly 50 years ago, focused solely on helping people live happier, more fulfilled lives. Our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, provides advice that can be put into action each day, helping people do better and feel better. Thousands of top, highly respected, truth-seeking experts have appeared in Bottom Line Personal, 
on topics in all areas of life, including healthcare, financial planning, home improvement tips, great gift ideas, how to save money on travel, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.